This episode is brought to you by Caregiver Chronicles, an eight-week online course from diagnosis through hospice. For more information, use the link in the show notes. Welcome to Fading Memories, a supportive podcast for those caring for a loved one with memory loss. Before we get in the show, I thought I'd give you some details on some of the courses that you will receive with Caregiver Chronicles. It starts from the very beginning with the diagnosis, but you will also get courses on a healthy lifestyle, navigating medical professionals, understanding medication, legal matters, insurance, dealing with durable medical equipment, when a caregiver is needed, finding one, placement, family dynamics and challenges and conflict, home health, hospice, and planning for your loved one's transition. There are three options available. One lesson, which includes two private consultations, eight lessons, which include four private consultations and their weekly live group invite, or all 16 lessons and a private bonus, six private consultations and the weekly live group. I know from personal experience that the more you know about handling this disease, the better the outcome will be for everyone. So I urge you to check them out and let them know that you learned about them from Fading Memories Podcast. I am excited to introduce my guest today, Aaron Blight. He is the author of the new book, When Caregiving Calls, Guidance as You Care for a Parent, Spouse, or Aging Relative, which was released on October 13th of 2020. Aaron is passionate for supporting caregivers, which is rooted in his personal experience as a family caregiver, his professional background as the owner of a large home care company, and as the leader at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and from his studies as caregiving as a phenomenon of social science. So thank you for joining me today, Aaron. Thank you, Jen, for for inviting me. It's great to be with you. In my experience, and I know a lot of caregivers have the experience that caregiving doesn't call, it sort of kicks down the door and demands your attention. So what was the inspiration for the book? And that'll hopefully lead us into how we can be more prepared when caregiving actually calls. You know, my book, what was the inspiration for, for writing it? It really came from 20 years of being a caregiver, working with caregivers and studying caregiving as a phenomenon of social science. My, my own caregiving experience kind of came like a, a door being beaten down over 20 years ago when my mother-in-law was diagnosed with a brain tumor. She was relatively young. She was only 59 years old. I was 29 at the time. My wife was, was a little bit older than me but we had young children and I had a a job at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, writing national healthcare policy for elderly and disabled people. But I didn't have a clue what it meant to be elderly or disabled until my mother-in-law's cancer emerged out of nowhere and our lives were upended. And that led me to a change in my career. I left CMS, became a home healthcare company owner and then studied caregiving, as I said, um, from a learning standpoint. And I've been uh, in contact with many, many families that have gone through the caregiving experience. And so I felt compelled to write this book, to be honest with you, because I know that families need help when caregiving enters the picture. 
And so that was what, what prompted me to write the book. So yeah, 29 small children at home. Your caregiving didn't call you. It kind of sounds like it kind of punched you guys right in the head, which is a pretty common occurrence. So what should we be doing to help educate the greater population on the understand or to help them understand that 70% of us are going to need care before we pass away. So I think the other 30% that don't need care probably leave early or are, you know, like my grandfather die suddenly and immediately. So what should the rest of us be doing so that we don't get punched in the head with caregiving, how it can just call us politely? Well, I think that one of the things about caregiving is that it is everywhere. I mean, as you just said, 70% of us will be needing caregiving at some point in our lives. Uh, a recent study that came out from the AARP and the National Alliance for Caregiving said that this was a 2020 study, said that over 50 million Americans have provided caregiving assistance in the last year. Wow. Uh, that's about one fifth of the population. And when you think about those numbers, it, it's a staggering number of people that are involved in caregiving. But the thing is, you don't really think about it until it's right there upon you. Yeah. It's easy. It's easy to just kind of say, yeah, well, I know that eventually there might be a need for caregiving, but I've got other things to focus on and worry about. And so oftentimes families are not prepared for the, not just the physical, but also the emotional the relationship realities that caregiving presents to them. And it can be really difficult to, to wrap your head around. Yeah, I can relate a little bit with the relationship change. I suspected that my mom did not recognize me as the daughter, mostly because I'd lost a tremendous amount of weight. So I didn't look like my previous self. So when you have a broken brain, you know, that's... Uh, People that knew me barely recognized me. So that that didn't surprise me. She thought I was her best friend. So it was, I don't want to say difficult. There were days it was difficult when I had to refer to my dad as Chuck or your husband or whatever. Whenever I did refer to him as dad, she was completely confused. She had no idea who I was talking about. And there were times when it's like, oh, you know, it'd be really nice if I could just, you know, talk about my dad. <laughs> it doesn't matter if she acknowledged yeah you know, him or not, but yeah, so I can, you know, you don't think about those kind of, and I'm not sure what the right word is, but you don't think about those changes and how they affect you. Cause there are times, even with my grandmother, who we talked about before offline, who's 102 and a half, because she doesn't hear well, she doesn't always exactly remember who she's talking to, which is kind of frustrating. <laughs> And sometimes when I refer to dad, she gets confused. And then I'm like, really? Your brain is fine. So why, why can't I not talk to you about your oldest son slash my dad? So it, it, is, it is one of those things people don't realize, you know, and it's just, you know, another one of those added thousand paper cuts that just make caregiving more emotionally challenging. So I can relate to that a little bit. Absolutely. Especially, you know, families that have loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, in particular, as you were describing, it can be just heart-wrenching to 
watch their loss of self occur slowly and insidiously over time. Um, one of the things that I think, and I'm not, I'm not an Alzheimer's expert. I'm a, a generalist <laughs> when it comes to caregiving. Um, but I think that one of the most important tips that Alzheimer's caregivers can remember is, you know, when, when your loved one starts to exhibit signs of alternate reality and they're thinking and seeing things that aren't there, um, you know, there's, there's, there's this almost natural inclination to, to try to argue and say, well, no, that's not, that's not, that's not happening right now. Stop, you know, and oftentimes that just increases the agitation and the conflict with your loved one. And instead of taking that approach and trying to dispute what is real, uh, it actually can be much more manageable to just go with it and to just say, oh, you see your, your sister out there on the swing? <laughs> what's, what's she saying? You know, how's she doing? What is she, what's she wearing today or whatever? And by just kind of going with, by joining them in their reality, um, you're actually demonstrating a, a certain level of, of dignity and respect for their lived experience. And you're avoiding um, a lot of the potential conflict and frustration that could be happening that could occur just by trying to argue about what is real and what's not real. I mean, it's, it's their lived experience and you're honoring that. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that it's actually a dignified way of communicating or being with them. That was one of my struggles with my mom. She did not have hallucinations until close to the end. And thankfully I was pretty certain that was what was happening. She was talking about some woman and she was pointing up way up in the top of a very large tree. And I was like, I'm not really sure what she's talking about. And she's pointing at that tree and I knew her visual processing was just horrific. And so I, I don't, I don't remember what I said, but I didn't argue with her. I just tried to go with it. And it was better for me emotionally and mentally. Like it was less mentally exhausting if I did just go with it, but I had to, I had to kind of make it like a creative exercise, but it, it took me too long because it felt really disrespectful to be like, oh yeah, okay. Like one story from very close to the end of her life when she was telling me that her brothers were normal people now. And I'm like, oh, okay. Really glad to hear that. You know, how are they not normal before? Which was not really the best question because she just sort of said something totally different. But I was trying to engage her where she was at. And it, it is a lot harder than it sounds. And for me, it was, it felt, disrespectful and when i kind of got finally got over that which was way too late in her journey it was much easier for both of us so i'm glad you, i'm glad yeah. you mentioned that because you, know, you always hear that and it's you know oh just meet them in their reality i'm like okay well that's not as easy as it sounds so it's not and and if you haven't been around people with dementia before your natural inclination is to just try to correct them and try to bring them back to this moment here and now that you're experiencing. And um, that it's a, it's a very, uh, it sounds like a very easy suggestion, but it's a very impactful suggestion if you're able to do it. And it can make a big difference in terms of 
your caregiving for someone who has Alzheimer's. I know of a, a man that was, uh, had been a World War II pilot mm. and he was hospitalized and uh, had Alzheimer's disease and was extremely agitated and was kind of flailing about in the bed and, and was not responding to the nurses. And um, he was talking about something in the air with the, the, the pilot being a pilot. And eventually the one of the nurses started talking him through as if he was in World War II and uh, you know, up there in the air over Germany or France or whatever the case was. And he eventually calmed down. And it was, it was that act of just meeting him where he was that allowed him to, to be um, calmer and, and more subdued and they could work with him much better. That, that's a feat, not being a huge history buff. I'm not sure, I might've figured out what he was doing I'm not sure I could pull out enough history to make it uh, maybe it would have made sense even if I was all off on my facts, but that's that kudos to that nurse. And I have a question that kind of relates to what we're discussing. I know a caregiver who she's taking care of her mom and apparently the stepdad has passed away recently and occasionally mom remembers that she hasn't seen the husband for a period of time with my mom. I never reminded her that my dad was gone or her husband was gone. <laughs> and we did the same thing with my maternal grandmother who had vascular dementia because it's just cruel. But this gal is not as far along as my mom was when my dad died or, or my grandmother, when she was having issues, she would, she, my grandmother would actually get very upset and say, you know, her, you're, she would be talking to my aunt. Your dad's left me. She, he's left me for another woman. And this other caregiver, unfortunately, the woman goes into the grieving process and she's confused. She doesn't think people have explained to her what happened to her husband. You know, do you have any suggestions for that kind of scenario? And I'm hoping I'm describing it well enough that it makes sense because yeah. that sounded a little disconjointed there for a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, again, I'm, I'm not an Alzheimer's expert, but um, I do know enough about it that, you know, each person has their own individual experiences mm -hmm. and their individual um, context and memories. And uh, in the book, I, I talk about a study that was done by Paul Hager, who is a, an Australian learning theorist, and they examined uh, direct care aides who were working in a dementia care unit where all of the, of a nursing facility. So all of the residents there had Alzheimer's disease and had their own, you know, alternate realities that they were living with, even though they were all co-located in this space. And the aides were there to try to manage the situation. And even though they didn't have any formal training in Alzheimer's disease or in uh, the, the medical progression of the disease or anything like that, they developed their own way of managing their environment and helping those residents through a process that they called showing, guessing, and trying. Showing, guessing, trying. And by just, in other words, trial and error practice. <laughs> you got to figure out what works with each individual person. 
And by practicing, by, you know, going through that, that conversation multiple times with that person who has dementia and trying different things, you're going to realize and discover how to best manage the situation. So showing, guessing, trying is to me something that I like to share with people because you, you don't necessarily know what's going to work. You know, in one case, it might be perfectly okay to remind the loved one that yes, uh, you know, your, your husband has passed away. But for another person, that might just bring them to tears or create all kinds of confusion. So maybe that's not the right answer for that person. Yep. So it, I think that when you approach caregiving that way and realize it, there's no manual that's going to give you all of the answers for your loved one, but through that process of trial and error, through showing, guessing, trying, Tech, techniques and tactics will emerge and will allow you to be more effective as a caregiver. Yeah, I used to say early on, after well, he passed away and we moved her to memory care within two weeks, which sounds really terrible. It was going to be terrible no matter when we did it. So we just, you know, she would have had to move multiple times if we didn't do it that close to him passing away. And when I, whenever I would visit and take her out, you know, most of my listeners know that we went and watched kids and she would say, does my husband know where I'm at? And this is where I learned that if I said, yes, mom, dad knows where we're at, we're going, that didn't answer the question. She literally asked me that once it was about every 25 feet because from her room to halfway to the door, to the door, to the outside door, to the car, she must ask me like five times. It was like, (laughs) It's like, do I really want to take her out? When I finally <laughs> figured out that saying dad knew where we were did not answer her question. And I would say, oh yeah, Chuck knows where we're at. That helped a lot. That cut back on the, the question significantly, mostly because I was actually finally answering it for her. But I, ne- you know, sometimes she'd say, well, I, I need to, she'd mentioned her husband. Well, did I see him? Oh, no, I think he's at a rotary meeting, which my dad was a Rotarian. My husband and I are too. Or I would say, no, where the heck is he today? And, and she'd say something like, well, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> she'd always get a little sarcastic about him. It was kind of, there were days it was funny, but there was occasionally when it's like, oh, you know, could we just have like the positive memories, please? And, <laughs> but I never, ever reminded her that he was gone because I knew what my grandmother had gone through. And there was one day we were in the car. We were coming back from her doctor. I swear. I, I don't know. I think most families experience this, but I don't know why like serious conversations have to happen in trapped spaces like a car. But we were driving. We were at a stoplight, thankfully. And she said, it was really sad when your father passed away. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, Just came out of the blue. Totally like that, huh? out of the blue. And I said, yeah. But he'd been sick a long time. And so I think it was better. And she goes, uh-huh. And then she started talking about the trees. I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> that part, that conversation is now done. Which I was really glad we were actually stopped because she shocked me so bad that I don't know what I would have done if I was actually navigating through traffic. So that's kind of what I did. I always just basically said, or she'd ask me, have you seen him lately? Well, no, I think he's with, and I would name his best friend. I think they went out to lunch or I, you know, I always found something for him to be doing, which was always the things he normally did. And that always seemed to work. So I might suggest that. It's a great strategy. 
I didn't want to like deal with the the tears and the crying and I knew that would be really mean. So I will suggest that to this gal, but that's what I did. And maybe she might want to try it. Her mom seems to be, I don't want to use the word triggered because that's sort of, that's kind of a loaded word these days, but she seems, she seems to be triggered by sad scenes in movies or scary. You know, it's like, she has to be really careful what they watch on TV which Mm -hmm. is interesting. My mom didn't really connect with TV for so long that I never had to worry about that. So what Hmm. other suggestions do you have for generally anybody that ends up caregiving? Because it's a struggle no matter what. It's worse when you're dealing with somebody that is forgetting things and forgetting how to do their daily living. And, you know, eventually my mom forgot how to eat, which was the very, very end. So... I didn't have to deal with that too much, but I know your book is, um, it's in each chapter is a different type of topic, right? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, the book has 18 chapters and each chapter covers something that is really relatable and, uh, inherent in caregiving. Uh, and the chapters include conversation roles, R O L E S relationship, meaning like, you know, your relationship with your, your loved one, the care receiver, family, uh, understanding that, you know, you are providing care to your, your loved one, but there are other family members that might be in the picture as well. Uh, time, stress, work, body, mind, home, independence, loneliness, emotion, providers, skills, rewards, faith, and next steps. Um, So one thing that I think is really important to understand and appreciate for family caregivers is that caregiving will change your relationship with your loved one. And a lot of people, and and this I think for me personally was, was almost revelatory. And when I was taking, when, when our mother, when my mother-in-law moved in with us after her brain tumor uh, was diagnosed and she had brain surgery, mm-hmm. I had a really hard time with her being in our home. And she was supposed to be in our home for just two weeks to recover from brain surgery and, and move out back to her own place. <laughs> you laugh. Like famous last words. <laughs> yeah, she, she stayed in our home for almost two years. She went through two brain surgeries, radiation, chemotherapy while she was in our home. She lived for five and a half years after her original diagnosis, but we were constantly, even after she moved out, we were constantly going over to her house and helping her. During that time that she was in our home, I really struggled with that. On the one hand, I wanted her to be in our home. I wanted to be there for her and help her. And I knew that she needed the help. But at the same time, I resented her presence in our home. And I, I felt so conflicted about it. And you know, there was always this sort of internal struggle that I was having with her being there because it affected our whole family in so many different ways. Uh, there were all of the, the, the physical disruptions to our lives that were, we were always taking care of her, meeting her needs. Uh, but there also was, you know, some of the, the things that were happening with our, her grandchildren, our children, you know, she, she was mothering 
our children instead of grandmothering our children and things like that, that could be very challenging. And we had to put our life on hold to take care of her and, and her uh, cancer. And so I didn't really fully appreciate and understand some of the things that I was struggling with until years later when I was studying caregiving and I came across some research in applied gerontology from Rhonda Montgomery and Carl Kozlowski. They are sociologists, applied gerontologists, they study aging and they're specialists in caregiving. Their research is uh, internationally known, but they spent their careers studying family caregivers and they developed something called family caregiver identity theory. Mm, I have not heard of that. And it, it, it basically describes family caregiving as a series of role-based transitions that occur over time due to changes in the caregiving context. And so what that means really is that if you think about your, let's just say that you're taking, you, you've talked about um, your mom, right? So you're taking care of your mother. You've always had historically a mother-daughter relationship mm-hmm. before any caregiving, mm-hmm. right? And that, that mother-daughter relationship is unique. There is nobody like your mother in your life. And it goes all the way back to your birth. You know, she changed your diapers, she watched you walk, she took you to school, she fed you, she cheer, she was a cheerleader for you, you know, she she supported you and and you watched her be the mom for so long. And uh, there's a lot of meaning in that relationship between a mother and a daughter. And the way that you interact with your mother is informed and embedded within that that historic relationship that you have with her. Um, you probably behave or, or say things that might be different around your mother than other people, you know, like your mother versus your boss, you're not going to be the same person as, you know, with your mom compared to your boss. And so that historic relationship has predated any caregiving. That is true. And now when your your mother who's cared for you and raised you now requires care from you, things will be different between the two of you. Now you um, are doing things for your mother that you never did before. And your discussion with her is different from any type of interaction that you had with her before. And she starts to potentially see you differently. And so these, the introduction of caregiving tasks can shape your perception of who you are in that relationship. And you start to wonder, well, who am, who am I now to my mother? Am I, am I her daughter or am I her, her best friend? Or, or am I just a caregiver? Am I just here to you know, uh, feed her and wipe her bottom and, and you know, take her to medical appointments? Is that all that I am now to my mom? And when caregivers, they struggle with this type of thing. Um, and that creates something that Montgomery and Kozlowski call an identity conflict, where now the family caregiver, in addition to the new tasks that they're performing that can be stressful and overwhelming, they have the, the emotional 
challenge of navigating a completely new type of relationship that didn't exist before with their mother. And that can be uh, just as hard to, to, to manage. So family caregivers, you're, you're not even realizing this, it's just happening. And, and that's a huge part of why you struggle. And um, the way to kind of get, to get through that is to really either, there's one of three ways that you, that you could sort of manage that situation, that, that identity conflict. Um, one is to, to offload some of the caregiving tasks that are causing you the greatest stress to other care providers. So you, you might bring in home care providers or you have uh, other family members that start sharing in the caregiving responsibilities or you look at care facilities so that um, those things that are causing you such difficulty can be taken care of by someone else. A second way to uh, kind of mentally, cognitively process this and come to terms with it is to incorporate caregiving into your definition of your family role as a daughter. So in other words, you start to think differently about what it means to be a daughter when your mother is 90 and has Alzheimer's. So now you realize, okay, you're basically saying to yourself, my mom, she's always been my mom, but now that she's 90 and she has Alzheimer's, our relationship is different. And being a daughter to a 90 year old woman with Alzheimer's means that I have to do caregiving tasks and, and I'm okay with that. I accept that. I am going to do it because that's just what it means to be a daughter at this stage of her life. And the other, the third way to deal with it is to basically recast your role in the relationship to where now you bet you're saying, okay, you know, historically I've been a daughter, that's been my mother, and we've had this certain type of relationship. But now that she's 90 and she has Alzheimer's, I'm not gonna be a daughter as much anymore. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a caregiver and I'm going to accept that role. It's a new role, a role that I didn't have before in this relationship with her, but I'm okay with this role now because I want to honor the historic relationship that I've had with her and I wanna be there for her. And that means being a caregiver for her today. And I accept that and I'm okay with it. And so in, in all three of these different ways that you might respond, that's easier said than done. Yeah. But they all require a shift in your thinking. You have to start thinking a little bit differently about who you are in this relationship and what does your mother need? And the caregivers that are able to transition through that and really be okay with it, those are the ones that are, are able to really be the most successful at being a caregiver. Well, I can comment a little bit. I was much more comfortable with the part of the caregiving that I did, whereas I provided the external stimulation, little adventures that brought her joy. That was much easier for me, even though physically it was not easy. But when it came to, you know, and, and there was, because in the last 10 months of her life, she 
I felt like I was constantly chasing new struggles, new issues. She was very, very combative. She did not want help. And I knew helping in when, even when she needed it could re result in, in getting scratched. She was really good at scratching and drawing blood on caregivers. She did it on my husband was not going to let her do it to me. And so I, very purposely tried to not put myself in the position where I would upset her by helping, which was super frustrating. And then being the, um, on the receiving end of either a smack or scratching or just very physical anger. I mean, fortunately she wasn't real strong, but you know, you don't want to rest. Like I literally had her, her wrists in my hands because she was literally like trying really hard to claw the daylights out of me. I think this was back in February of this year, 2020. So she was, she was really ticked off at me and I'm not, I, I kind of know what I did that triggered her, but you know, I just looked at her and I said, I am not going to allow you to hurt me. And that, I think that made it worse, but it, it got to the point where I just, I had to like end the visit. But when we went out, she actually re remembered me as the person who would take her and do fun things because there was one visit where I had just gotten home from a trip like at one o'clock that morning. So I was very tired and I knew that being tired or stressed or not feeling well, separate from how I felt with her, if I was tired and stressed or not feeling well and I was with her, it could easily devolve into something negative. So I thought I'm going to be smart. And I brought a nice snack and it happened to be my wedding anniversary. So I bought, brought my wedding album that we could look through and we just stayed in the courtyard of, of the community she lived in. And when I got there, she's like, Oh, where are we going today? And I was like, Oh dear. <laughs> like one, now I felt guilty that I hadn't planned on taking her anywhere because I, I, I knew that I was tired and, you know, when we're tired, it's really easy to, to get frustrated much sooner and, and not, not deal with things that are easy to deal with when we're not tired. Fortunately, the snack and the looking at the wedding pictures entertained her. So that was fine. But man, that I, I was amazed that she remembered when she saw me, she remembered me as the person who took her out. So that, so I, I made that a, a goal that we always went and did things, which is of course a lot more, more difficult in the winter. Kids aren't playing in the park. We went once went to McDonald's where they have a really big play space. There was not one kid in the whole restaurant. <laughs> so, oh. you know, there was, it was challenging, but that, that part of caring for her was, I don't want to say easier. It was mentally easier. It was easier to accept that part of that role. But when you had, when I had to help her navigate eating which of course she didn't want help so you couldn't feed her or you know if you tried uh, we had a horrible time on new year's eve she she was pushing the food off the plate not intentionally it was just the week before she we, they'd had like little hamburgers and she kind of struggled with it because we all know how sometimes all the layers kind of slide apart and it's a little bit challenging so they had those are the best kind of hamburgers what those yeah. The best kind of and they were really good. And they weren't <laughs> real big. They were almost, they were slightly bigger than a slider. They were perfect for, you know, a, a woman in, in of her age and her, the, where she was at with the disease. 
but I didn't want her to struggle. So the following week, what I, what I was doing, I should back up half a step is I finally got smart. I started listening to guests who were saying, you know, you're going for an hour, two, or you're going for two hours, two and a half hours. You need to go twice a week for an hour instead of once a week for two. And I, there was a lot of logical, acceptable reasons that I was doing what I was doing, but it wasn't working anymore. So I finally, on December 23rd, 2019, I wrapped her gift. I picked her up. I put her in my car, drove around to the front of the community, to the assisted living part of the residence and took, got her out of the car. We had the nicest Christmas lunch, you know, and it's over on the assisted living side. They had huge trees and decorations. It was lovely. And I was literally there for about an hour and we had a great time. And I thought, you know what? I am not going to push this any further. And it was the nicest day. Unfortunately, the following week on December 30th, she fell. She ended up with stitches right above oh. her eye. And if you draw a straight line down, you end up in the pelvic region. The, and so I didn't obviously do anything extraordinary with her that day because she'd been at the hospital. She got stitches. I was like, that's enough drama. <laughs> this will not be yeah. well if I try to have a quote unquote nice lunch with her. So I went the next day, which was New Year's Eve, fully expecting to do the same thing we had done the week before, have a nice lunch, some dessert. You know, we sat by the fire. I mean, it should have been lovely. Was the biggest nightmare. I do know now why she had a lot of pain. She had a fractured pelvis. Mm. Still upsets oh, me. Oh, from that, from that fall. Yes, which obviously they did not yeah. find until she fell and broke her leg. And they're like, oh, well, there's a healing oh. fracture on her pelvis. And I, I had oh, to like really throttle back the anger because obviously the ER doctor was not the problem. I really wanted to go throttle her general physician and everybody else involved the week before because it was, or the month before. Cause it's like, I kept telling you guys, she, you know, went like overnight, had massive, massive pain walking and duh. Now we know why now that it's too late to deal with. So yeah, I have a little issue with that still, but we went, so she's mm. pushing the food off the edge of the plate just because that happens. And I kept trying to help, which pissed her off. And once like a noodle landed on the table, then we had to spend three minutes, you know, OCD everything on the table it was like oh my god I literally sobbed all the way home it was the most horrible horrible day and of course that was also the day that somebody put an offer on my house so it was it was a lovely way to end 2019 but when so wow when I was the provider of entertainment I could deal with that when I was the person who had to help with the eating and the toileting and all that stuff I had not accepted that role I guess as well as I should have and it came a little bit more rapidly than I was expecting. So I'm with you people on that one. I know how hard that is. Well, and, you know, it's not that one person who can do certain caregiving tasks is better than another person who finds those tasks difficult. I mean, we all have our own strengths and weaknesses. We have our own uh, life circumstances and other responsibilities. And whereas one family member might be in a better position to handle things than another, that's, that's okay. I think that um, sometimes 
you feel guilty that you can't do this or that, or, or you feel frustrated. And it's important for caregivers to realize that, you know, you're human too. And these are extraordinary circumstances that you're trying to manage. And you, you need to focus on caring for yourself as well as caring for your loved one. Because when you're in a better place, you're going to be more effective as a caregiver for, for your loved one. That's an excellent point. So your book on, or your book, your chapter on time, what, what specifically do you talk about in that chapter? Because that one piqued my interest is something I'm not sure we've discussed much on this podcast before. At least yeah. I hope so. <laughs> well, with, with the, the chapter on time, um, I, I, to start off the chapter, I talk a little bit about a little uh, experience that I had kind of about the time I was writing the book. My, my daughter was um, in the high school parking lot and a, another kid at the high school backed into her car. <laughs> and <clears throat> as a result of that, her car had damage and I had to now get involved with my daughter's car and I had to spend a lot of time that week taking her car to the shop, getting the repair done, handling the insurance claim and driving my daughter to and from all of her activities because that's what she needed. And so that little accident, that little fender bender in the high school parking lot was an encroachment on my time. It was an inconvenience, but it was something that I just had to absorb if I wanted my daughter to do the things she needed to do and if I wanted to get her back on the road. And so if you think about it, we have interruptions like that, interruptions to our time constantly throughout the day in the month. Caregiving, caregiving is an encroachment on your time. You have to realize going into caregiving that you're going to have things like that little fender bender that will pop up because your loved one has needs and those needs will arrive, arise at inconvenient moments for you. Always. <laughs> um, you might have to drop, you might have to drop what you're doing to go take care of something for your loved one. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, like you were talking about just a few minutes ago, allocating the, your time for your visits to your mother being a two hour visit or a one hour visit, you know? So there are strategies that you can uh, come up with to manage your caregiving time more effectively to be more proactive in caregiving and less reactive. And as you approach your use of time in caregiving a little bit more proactively, you're gonna, you're gonna be happier, you're gonna be more effective in all of the dimensions of your life. Another aspect of time that I talk about in caregiving is uh, I like to use the analogy of a marathon. And, you know, if you think about a marathon, I've, I've, I have not run a marathon. I've run a few half marathons. <laughs> I haven't even gotten that far. But, We're cyclists. <laughs> okay. But, you know, when you have a marathon, it's a long race, right? And it's, it's, um, difficult and it's strenuous and arduous and all of those things, but you have a, you have a predetermined finish line. You know that if you could just get to that finish line, um, you'll be okay. And caregiving is almost like running a marathon without a predetermined finish line. 
you don't know how long you're going to be caregiving. Nobody really knows uh, how long this period of caregiving is going to last. Not, not you, not your loved one, not the doctors. And so you keep running and running and running and, and you think, man, if I could just turn the corner and see the finish line, maybe things will be okay, but there's no finish line in sight. And so that kind of protracted nature of caregiving is another thing that can make it very difficult because you can't schedule a completion date. And when you can't schedule a completion date, it, you can't schedule other things that would happen after completion, like you know, family vacation, for example. A lot of caregivers feel like they can't take a vacation because their loved one needs them. Mm -hmm. They can't even schedule a night out to eat dinner maybe because their loved one needs them. And so uh, those are some of the types of things that, that are discussed in the time chapter. Those are good, good examples. <clears throat> and I know, I know I've talked to caregivers on kind of both sides of the spectrum. One that brings in quite a bit of help because they won't survive without it. And this whole pandemic has really upended that solution and other caregivers who have had struggles finding um, reliable help and then just decide, and I personally think erroneously, that it's just easier just to do everything themselves. And when they're this one particular person who is on top of my mind, when their loved one is that is now gone, this one person looks like they just look completely wrung out, probably older than they are. And I worry you know, because now they're going through the grieving process, which is difficult. And we still haven't been able to have the type of funerals that we're accustomed to. Like my dad had a huge thing. We still haven't had anything for my mom, which is very frustrating. So it's, it's a difficult balance. And sometimes I remember the first night we left my parents when my dad was on hospice with 24 hour caregivers and my husband and I had to pull out of the driveway, drive 20 miles home and pray to God nothing happened till the next day, which thankfully no, nothing dramatic happened. But it was, I remember it very vividly being very similar to like the first time you leave your kid with a non-family babysitter or my, yeah. my daughter, because I'm the oldest of all the grandkids on both sides. So I had cousins that could take care of her that were much younger than me. And I don't remember my daughter having non-family care babysitters, but still when you have to leave your baby with somebody and go away and not, you know, they always joke in like sitcoms, you know, Hey, this is dinner for the two of us. We're not going to talk about the kid. And then they end up sitting there in silence. <laughs> it's like really hard. And it's yeah for us. Um, well, my mom was in memory care, so that helped, but I also knew her mom lived to, to 91. Now, my grandmother did not develop vascular dementia until her mid to later 70s. My mom passed away at 77, so the timeline was different, but we assumed that she would live into her 80s, which I think she might have made it into the early 80s if she hadn't fallen and broken her leg. That was the last... Yeah. 
you know, that was like, that was the final straw. Her body just could not deal with any more damage or injuries. That was it. She was done. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was a surprise. Cause I remember, I remember, you know, I've told guests like yourself, you know, I'm ready for this journey to be over. It is actually very difficult to remember a time when she didn't have memory issues or a time when I didn't have to worry about what was going on with her because of her memory issues. So I was, I felt, oh, I'm ready for this journey to be over. And when it happened, I was not ready. <laughs> that was the biggest shock. It, it was yeah. not entirely surprising that she passed away a little bit, but my reaction to not being ready was, that was a huge shock. Cause it was like, what, you know, I'm like, this is the best thing for her. It's, it really is like, this has been a very long journey. <laughs> so I kind of feel like we overestimated the timeline tremendously and that helped a little bit because we knew it was going to be years and years and years and, years. and then it wasn't so many years so i mean it had been a lot of years up until that point but the really hard years were not as long so i don't know if that helps people think about you know this could you know you thought it was two weeks and it ended up two years and i'm not good at math but that sounds like a lot of a huge percentile higher so if you assume, okay, the doctor's telling me two weeks, maybe think about it. Well, how, how are we going to handle it if it's a month? And how are we going to handle it if it's six months? And, and then maybe it's a little less dramatic on your time. And then you just have to understand that they will likely be okay if you leave and have a nice dinner, go to the movies, that thing we used to do. <laughs> not really sure what you would do at this point. <laughs> Go to a park. Yeah. You know, just go for a walk. Walk outside. Yeah, just by yeah. yourself or take your <laughs> take your golden retrievers. I've got one that's literally under my feet. I'm trying not to kick him in the head. <laughs> <laughs> so is there one other chapter we should discuss before we sign off here today? Because a lot of them sounded really good. We could probably be here all day. <laughs> yeah. Um, we kind of hmm. touched on roles. Yeah, one, so, um, <laughs> I threw him a curveball. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk for a minute about rewards. Oh, that sounds perfect. Because, you know, so often we focus on the strain and the stress of caregiving and the challenge of caregiving and the burden of caregiving. And I don't think that we spend enough time talking about the rewards of caregiving. And uh, Jen, I'm just I'm just curious, you know, if you if you think about your time as a caregiver, what what rewards have you found in your caregiving experience? How has caregiving enriched your your life? Well, I learned a whole new career, which thanks to 2020. I seriously needed because I was a portrait photographer. And since the last recession, that's been a very challenging industry to be in. And I, I needed something different. And I was in photography long enough that I could do it without thinking. So when I started podcasting and talking to people, I had to move out of my comfort zone, especially after I tapped out on all the local people I could actually interact with in person back in those days. So 
I have gained a lot of dynamic learning and I can tell that it's been a benefit mentally fit, you know, cognitively, because that's important to keep learning new things. So there was that process. I've met a lot of really fantastic people. So that's kind of on the personal side, but had somebody told me that there would actually be, you know, moments of humor with my mom, I would have thought they were out <laughs> of their flipping mind. And there were, there was, um, well, the day that she told me her brothers were normal people, I had a really hard time not totally cracking up because, you know, of course, family dynamics pop into your head. And, you know, I was kind of under the assumption that only one of them was sort of normal, but, you know, it was all debatable. And so I yeah. had a moment where I could appreciate that even though what she said was really strange and I had no idea where that was coming from or or why she was telling me her brothers were now normal. I guess they had not been normal. I don't know. I have no idea where any of that came, but I could enjoy that moment of humor because I was thinking about my family members, her brothers in a way of, well, you know, what, what is she thinking that makes them not normal? I'm trying to think of some other, you know, just sometimes just going to the park and sitting and watching the kids it was relaxing. You know, I knew I was providing her with some stimulation, something different, you know, some of the cognitive things that are important that are really challenging when somebody's in memory care and also very difficult to maneuver around because she walked so slowly. There was days, <laughs> there were days I'm like, I am pretty sure I could throw fire firemen carry this woman over my shoulder, but Boy, would that not go over well. <laughs> I'm sure she would not appreciate that. But, you know, there was days we'd just go to the park and by the time I would get her seated on the bench and she she loved watching the kids and you could tell that it just brought her great joy. And, and I could just, I could either deal with business on my phone, which I was getting pretty good at and considering I'm almost 54, you know, sometimes like, my phone is still a little tiny, not, not like my big computer. Or I could just put my head back on the back of the bench and close my eyes and feel the warm air on my face and listen to the kids playing and laughing and listening to the other parents interacting with their kids. And it just, it was, it was kind of a peacefulness that I don't think I would have participated in had I not been focused on providing her with joy. That is awesome. So, so just from what you just, what you just articulated, Jen, you, you talked about in terms of rewards from caregiving, you talked about a sense of peacefulness, you talked about learning, you talked about enjoying and appreciating the present moment, humor, uh, opening your, your path to a new career, um, appreciating simple things, um, providing your care receiver, your mother with the stimulation and the meeting her needs, that that was something that was rewarding for you to be able to meet her needs, bringing joy and happiness to her life. And, you know, that's one of the, and I talk about some of these rewards of caregiving and I invite the reader, the caregiver to really reflect on the positives that have come from caregiving because it teaches us so many profound lessons about life, about being human, <laughs> about relationships, about what we need really in the end of our lives. And, you know, we're all going to get there unless we're just hit by a Mack <laughs> truck one day and, and just overnight, you know, we're, we're dead. 
we're all going to experience um, the effects of aging and frailty and potentially disability or chronic conditions and maybe even cognitive functioning problems. And so when you're that close to someone at the end of their life, at the end of their life, and you're observing what they're going through, you're learning about your future. And um, that can be really profound. You said something about humor and you just made me think of this, this thing that uh, my, my mother-in-law had cognitive challenges after her brain surgery for the rest of mm -hmm. her life. And one of those things was aphasia, mm -hmm. which is where you, you mentally know the word you're trying to say, but what comes out is the wrong word. It's a different word. And um, anyway, at the time that uh, she had her condition, McDonald's had a, a new hamburger that was called the Big and Tasty. I don't know if you remember that, the Big and Tasty. I think I remember seeing ads for it. Yeah, they had it for a while. And so we were going through the drive-through and um, we asked my mother-in-law, what, you know, what, what do you want? She's like, I want a Big and Nasty. <laughs> <laughs> We just laughed about that forever, you know, just like the big and nasty, that, 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 that burger became the big and nasty for the rest of its existence in our household. But, you know, we enjoyed that, that laugh that only came because of her cognitive challenges. And she laughed with us, you know, she actually knew what she was trying to say. She just couldn't say it. That's crazy. It's interesting when, as you reiterated what I said, a lot of what I learned being a caregiver for, for my mom, see if I can speak, has really, really helped with this challenging time of 2020. I'm, I'm not an introvert, but I'm not super extroverted. So I like socializing. And then when I'm done, when I've had enough, it's time to just go home and do my own thing. And that kind yeah. of includes family. It's like, I don't have to do things with my husband or when my daughter lived with us, you know, I didn't have to do things with them, but knowing they were in the house was fine. But then when they would leave, I'd be like, no, no, why, why are you leaving? It's very strange. But <laughs> being able to appreciate the simple things, because that's kind of all that's left right now, living in the moment, because we can't plan ahead, which is really frustrating for me. <laughs> all of these things I learned, and I didn't really realize that I learned a lot of those lessons caring for my mom. So, yeah, you know, See? yeah. So there's a big, and, and I, I really, I really think that that part of caregiving does not get enough attention. I agree. It is a, a singular learning opportunity for us. And it, it, and it prompts us and challenges us to grow. And um, so that's a great thing. Yeah. We also become more, more empathic more understanding of others, you know, and, and more compassionate. Yeah, I remember a conversation with my husband, we were walking the dogs. There's a, a regional trail not far from our house. And I, I like variety. So we're walking the dogs in the same direction at the same time of day, blah, 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 boring. And I remember thinking, man, I feel like I'm in jail. And as soon as that thought crossed my head, I was like, uh, people are in jail, prison. They don't get to walk the dogs along the trail and look at the trees in the sunlight and have nice, you know, fluffy golden retrievers that love you so much. And it actually made me think about, you know, criminal justice reform, which I think this was prior to all of the uh, protests and things that happened over the summer. 
But I, I thought that was really interesting because it was like, wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of a sudden opened your eyes to different. Yeah, things. I was yeah, like, wow, this is uh, this is a very weird, you know, yeah. weird. Um, what's uh, having the phase of myself? I guess I know what I'm trying to say, but it's not coming out. It was like a weird consequence of, you know, my life shrinking because of this pandemic and just basically living in. 15 five square miles 15 square miles the town must be 15 like five and three like as most people know i can't do math so <laughs> you know i'm walking <laughs> and it's like there aren't a lot of options there's not a lot of variety to participate in so i've just had to learn you know to enjoy what i have expand on what i can expand on and just hang in there <laughs> hopefully the uh, i'll turn a corner and well i'll turn a corner and and see the uh, finish line of this pandemic real soon. Yeah, hopefully so. <sighs> For real. Um, but, you know, it just amazed me that I had that insight into, wow, you know, if I feel like this and I get to walk the dogs, what is somebody who's living in like a whatever those, I don't even know what a jail cell size is. It's tiny. You know, maybe we should rethink that because cognitively that can't be good for somebody. So it just, it was like this, it was almost like getting punched in the side of the head with a realization that, Hmm, you know, I want to rethink some of this stuff because it's, it's not good cognitively for them, which means, you know, their real rehabilitation. Now there's extra challenges. It was, it was a whole fascinating topic we could go on and on, (laughs) but I don't want to, I don't want this to be a three hour podcast because nobody would listen (laughs) that long. So do you have one last bit of advice before we sign off? This has been really fantastic and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. Um, I just would uh, encourage, you know, I'd love it if, if your audience read the book and told me what they think about it. Um, you know, I tried to make it, to try to write a book that was very relatable for caregivers, very concise. I did not want a long-winded book that, you know, where the person goes on and on and on. Uh, so they're, they're concise chapters, but the chapters also have these questions for reflection that are designed to help the reader think deeply about their experience and identify ways that they can approach caregiving more proactively and that will allow you to be a better caregiver. And I'd, you know, I'd be honored if your audience picked up a copy and, and I'd love to hear what they think about it. Definitely. Well, the a link for ordering the book will be in the show notes. So it's easy to do. And I remember the, the questions from our previous conversation. And I really think that is a smart addition to the book. And if we can spare some time to, as you said, think deeply about our experience and what we've gotten out of it, that might really help turn a negative feeling into something at least neutral, maybe not positive, but it might help get you through another day (laughs) or another week until we find the finish line, which unfortunately when you're a caregiver, the finish line is not generally it's not generally a happy ending, but you will get through that too, which you also t- talk about in the book, but that's for another day. I hope you enjoyed that conversation enough to share with friends and family. And while you're at it, could you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and possibly a review? 
Even if you've done this in the past, this helps new caregivers find this podcast and we're still growing so we really appreciate the assistance. While you're on the computer, pop on over to my website. It's about as done as it will ever be. I believe it will always be a work in progress. There are articles, recipes, all kinds of fantastic information. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the newsletter. That way you'll never miss anything interesting. And with our busy lives, I know that's really easy to do. And as always, I'll be in your ears again next Tuesday.